Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Empower yourself today with legal knowledge and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient, and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. Empower yourself today and follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn by searching Get Legally Speaking to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient, and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. With over 3 million downloads and counting, do not miss out on learning more about a topic that interests you. Go over to our website at getlegallyspeaking.com and browse over 100 podcast episodes. Empower yourself today with legal knowledge and follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. Our episodes are free to access. However, if you feel that you would like to support the children's charity that we are raising money for, then head over to our Just Giving page at justgiving.com and search for Hattie Savari, where we are raising money for orphaned children at SOS Children's Villages, one of the worthiest children's charities. Donate as little as £1 for a great cause. Thank you. Hello and welcome to our podcast at Get Legally Speaking. Our legal conversation today will be higher education and the law. I am joined by Barrister Catherine Anderson from Three Paper Buildings Chambers in London. Catherine is an experienced education law specialist who offers first-class legal service, advice and customer services. 
She accepts instructions from local authorities, schools, parents, students and universities, as well as employers and employees in the education sector. Catherine has acted in many complex cases for post-16 and post-19-year-olds in education, health and care plans. She also provides training in education law to a variety of different audiences. Thank you ever so much for joining me, Catherine. Good morning. Hello. So good morning. Here we are. I'm, I was just saying to you, wasn't I, that I'm really pleased about doing this higher education and the law podcast because we've had so many requests from listeners to cover education uh, law. So let's let's take this from the top. Let's discuss what do we mean by higher education and the law and who can it apply to, Catherine? Well, higher education law is law that applies to the higher education sector and it's quite wide ranging. It covers what we lawyers call both public law and also private law. So, for example, there are Acts of Parliament which define which types of courses and institutions fall within the higher education sector in England and Wales, which institutions are competent to award degrees. There's law which has set up bodies to oversee the sector and to administer funding and to assess quality. And there's also law which makes provision for student fees for tuition. Then there's also a statutory scheme for the review of complaints made by students or former students in relation to higher education institutions which are within the scheme. And in addition, certain decisions of higher education institutions are still open to judicial review, which is a form of review or oversight by judges. The Equality Act applies to higher education institutions, protecting staff and students and applicants from discrimination. And then finally, by way of a further example, a student stands in a contractual relationship with a university or an institution that they attend. And so the law of contract generally applies to that relationship as well as consumer protection law. Goodness, that's actually quite a lot. I mean, quite nicely put, very nicely put by you. Thank you, Catherine, for that. But it's, you wouldn't imagine, I wouldn't have imagined that when I say education and the law, that so many, you know, the equality, the human rights, you know, there's, there's a lot that comes into this area of law and plays a part in it, really, which is really interesting, to be honest. So let's talk about, we mentioned um, students, and one of the debates that I've seen actually online, more than anywhere else, is are students considered to be consumers or are they customers? And why are we even having that debate? I mean, what's the, what's the situation with that one, Catherine? Well, legally speaking, students mostly will be consumers. Many people don't really like that notion because they don't perceive their educational relationship to be in that way. They don't, it has a kind of commercial connotation. Does, they don't it? Yes. But we are legally speaking here. So yes. <laughs> yes, we are absolutely oh, legally yeah. speaking here. Yes. Um, so as a general rule, if you're a student and you're acting or rather studying for purposes outside of your trade or business or profession, you will be considered a consumer for the purposes of consumer law. And what that means, for example, is that higher education providers have got obligations to provide students and potential students with clear information, for example, in their prospectuses. It also means that the terms and conditions in the agreement between higher education providers and students must be fair. And it also means, for example, that the higher educational institutions must ensure that their complaint handling processes and practices are accessible and clear and fair to students. 
Yes, no, I get it. I understand. And consume, I mean, am I right in saying then, it, we, students are considered consumers because they're consuming a service? I mean that's taking it down to bare bones basics now but yes, they're not acting they, they, yes they're consuming a service as it were um outside of a trade or business or profession um, right and they may not like to sort of see it in terms of consuming a service they may feel yes yeah to, to to be educated to participate in university life and and so on but um but they fall within the definition of, of consumers and having those protections uh, because those definitions and that's quite interesting really because you know here you are off about to go to a university or about to you know take up a higher education um course somewhere with a provider and all of a sudden you get a contract you know you've got this first contract that lands on your desk and you could be as young as 18 years old having to consider that having to look at does it suit me is it what I'm looking for is there anything I need to be aware of in there so I think you know very interesting that that happens uh can happen to people at, at a very young age you know only of when they're off to university when they're still learning um you know in the youngest in the younger stages so okay let's go straight on to if there's a problem so in education higher education also what steps would there be for somebody to consider if if they're a student and they want to make a complaint about their university or their study centre? So at any stage, whether it's they're just six months in, three months in, two years in, towards the end, what kind of steps could we talk about that could help people think, you know, this is actually what I should be doing to begin with? Okay, well, so to begin with, and I think just to pick up on a point that you made earlier, students won't necessarily get a document that lands um, come through the post itself to get a contract at the top of it. There's a large number of different documents that they'll probably have looked at from the prospectus um, to the rules and regulations of the university to various policies and procedures and that those all sort of form part of their agreement with the university. And so if they want to make a complaint, the starting point will be to get hold of and consider the university or higher education institution's internal policy or complaints procedure document, which may well be on the website it should be on the website in my of the, of the, That's of the education center or the university yes exactly and so that should be accessible on the website or you may be able to ask for a hard copy and that there should be a complaints procedure and that is likely to provide in first instance for your complaint to be dealt with informally if it can be but if it can't be resolved in that way it should provide for a formal procedure for you to pursue um, which provide a consideration of your complaint and it's worth bearing in mind that um, some types of complaint might fall under a different university procedure so for example the procedure relating to disciplinary or academic appeals depending on what your complaint is what the nature of it is Um, I'd always say that students who are considering making a complaint should seek advice for example from the student union or perhaps legal advice depending on what the nature of the complaint is yes if at the end of the internal process a student isn't satisfied, it can be possible to bring a complaint to the office of the independent adjudicator, which we can talk more about in a moment. That's very interesting. And I just want to go back, and I'm sorry for going back to your point on the contract. So if a student doesn't get a contract or a formal document that says, here you go, these are the T's and C's of the education supplier, the university or the centre, sign here to agree, 
which point is it considered that they're going to engage if they're not signing anything, if they're not agreeing to anything? Where do they see the T's and C's? It's just, is it, as you mentioned, it's just in the prospectus, it's just in the information packages? They'll get a document which they will be asking mm-hmm. to agree to. But what that will probably do is reference a large number of other documents which will include right. all the policies and procedures. And, right. uh, and they will also have in advance received the prospectus and so on, which again goes back to their rights under consumer protection law to have clear information in advance. Excellent. So it, it's interesting. So, it, it, you know, it's all done in a very sort of user friendly way, is what I'm saying, rather than the, the example I gave earlier. You know, here you go. Here's your contract for your education centre. Make sure you, you read it and sign it. It's done in a, in a more, you know, sort of information giving, a more user friendly way, a way in which the student will understand everything about where they're taking their studies, you know, and, and the Everything, everything to do with the centre and, and the courses they're going to take, etc. Absolutely. The whole point is that the information should be clear and accessible and easy to understand. There shouldn't be minute small print, as it were. No. Uh, yes, a lot of small print in our lives, I have to say. So first step, if you've got a problem, try to go internally. If it's not something, depending on the nature of your complaint, that you can take through the internal complaints procedure, then there will be outside help available and you mentioned that we will talk a bit more about that so let's talk about if you're the teacher if you're the person that the complaint is being made about um, what steps should a teacher consider taking if a student is making a complaint about them or their work well one important first step I think is to consider getting support um, because a situation in which a student has made a complaint about you could be very stressful and in my employment law practice, I've seen many instances where the stress on a member of staff of being investigated in relation to a complaint being made against them can affect their well-being and sometimes their ability to engage in the process. So many employees in those circumstances refer the employee to free sources of support, for example, advice and counselling. Sometimes it's helpful to consult a GP. Um, certainly consider contacting your union for support because you don't want a situation in which you're finding it difficult to engage in the investigation but from your employer's perspective it might look like you simply don't want to cooperate. Another another important step is to find out about and familiarise yourself with your institution's procedures so it's complaints procedure for the students, the staff handbook might set out what would happen if a complaint is made about a member of staff There should be disciplinary procedures and capability procedures, although, of course, it's important to stress that complaints about staff can be about a variety of matters which won't always raise disciplinary issues, i.e. conduct or capability issues about a person's ability to do their job. The next thing to say is those procedures should set up the procedure for the investigation of the complaint so you understand where you are in the process. Um, Another important step is in addition to getting support is to get advice possibly representation at an early stage could be from your union could be from a lawyer because employment lawyers often do advise and i just want to say that i think that's really important to consider because one of the things that is easy could be very easily done is to bury your head in the sand and you think oh this will go away or what is this nonsense because you might be angry or upset about the type of complaint that's being made about you you may be you know not willing to accept that that should even exist as a complaint but I think what you're saying is really key to seek help and advice very early on and and not to you know I can understand that somebody might be sitting there thinking well hold on if I now mention this to my line manager as a teacher or my head of department 
or the head of the institution, they might start thinking, oh, God, you know, what, what, what have you done? You've got a complaint that's been made against you and it might not perceive, be perceived well. But I think sort of getting help early on has to be a really key part of the process if you've got a complaint that's being made against you, because it gives you an opportunity at that stage, very early on, to explain, well, this is my thoughts, this is my side of the story, this is where I'm coming from now, rather than sort of not getting the help and advice and, and, and possibly, as you say, you know, getting in, getting very stressed out about it and not knowing the correct processes that should have been taken from the beginning. Because people can get, you know, I've seen people get criticised for that. Well, you should have done this. You know, you should have come and, and, and told us about this or you should have informed this department or this person. So I think that's getting early assistance and help and advice within your institution, because obviously you owe a duty to them as well as, an, as a uh, member of staff. It has to be really key. Yes, I think that's right. But I think it's also important to remember that um, an institution's procedures will very often involve um, or make provision, again, for a, a complaint to be dealt with informally um, and or through mediation and so on. And where that's the case, I absolutely advise you start to take part in that if they can. Yes, no, indeed. Indeed. So it doesn't necessarily imply that there will always be some sort of formal procedure that you... Um, Yes, it may be in an absolutely, and it could be in a completely informal, uh, informal way, and hopefully resolved at that stage before any, anything escalates. But uh, I think it's it's better to sort of tell whoever's you know overlooking your work very early on, rather than wait potentially for it to escalate more um, beyond your desk of somebody saying, "Here's my complaint to you, and I'm going to complain to you, and you battle it out with that person." I know Elve situation many years ago that happened in that way, and they, the student and the teacher was battling it out where they both should have gone off and done different things about it to try and help resolve it. Um, but yes, okay. So, are we? Let's talk about a very specific type of complaint. So, if you're not happy with the quality of the teaching and education that you're getting. And again, at any stage of your course, what, what, what sound advice can we give here to a, a student who's in that position, Catherine? Well, again, it is about looking at your university internal complaints procedure and following that. Um, again, it's likely that that will provide for your concern to be dealt with informally in the first instance. So it may set out who um, the, the staff would be in your faculty that you should discuss it with informally in the first instance. But if not, um, it should make provision for you to follow a formal procedure. And if at the end of that you're not satisfied, you may be able to complain to the Office of the Independent Adjudicator. But what I'd always say in relation to complaints is in, in that sort of regard, well, in any complaint, but particularly in relation to quality of teaching and so on, is to try and be as clear and specific as possible about what the issues are. Because it's right. a generalised form of complaint, it's, it's harder to get across what the problems are that, as you see it. Um, and although this should probably go without saying, my advice is always to be polite as possible, um, regardless of the frustrations. Um, that well, do you know what? My grandmother always told me that manners don't cost a pound. They don't cost anything. So always have your manners about you. So I couldn't agree more. Always be polite. Always, you know, try to keep your calm about a situation, even if you feel very passionate about it, that's creating you to be angry or upset. Naturally, you know, anger or upset Absolutely. or 
confusion, all these things. We're human beings, we, you know, even machines break down, but we're human beings and it's normal and natural to feel that way. But I think that's got to be sound advice there, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, I think that is to remember that, you know, very often what a student wants is they want to resolve the problem, but they want to preserve their relationships with the, the teaching staff and, and for those to be returning to the footing that they want them to be on. So hope, I think don't necessarily sort of view a, bringing a complaint as a confrontational exercise. It's about resolving a problem together. Yes, no, I think that's very important because particularly if you want to stay with the institution to continue your studies and you don't want the other teachers or the institution or maybe colleagues, you know, friends looking at you thinking, oh God, you know, that person went and made a complaint and, you know, looking at you negatively. And I think the approach is really important and really key. Um, And and it can... I should just say they should never be looking at you negatively because you've brought a complaint. But yes, but but it's life, isn't it, Catherine? You know, you might have other students who who are not necessarily your friends, but they're other students. They know you brought a complaint and they disagree with the fact that you've even brought the complaint because they might really get on with the teacher that you're complaining about. You know, these situations do come about. You may feel that negativity as a result. Whereas if you take, and I know this might sound a bit silly to say but the most positive approach to try and resolve your issue rather than a negative and a, and a confrontational approach um, as a complaint it could change the landscape and how it's dealt with completely for you well, I say it shouldn't be that and obviously uh, complaints should be dealt with them in confidence so I think concerns about other people knowing that you've brought a complaint that shouldn't be an issue Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. And let's talk about if you're not happy with your exam results. Now, I don't know, you know, many people that have stood up and said, I'm not happy with the exam results, I want to do about it. But I have read over the years, sort of in a consistent way, where people stand up and say, oh, you know, we, 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 or I have heard people say as well, oh, we weren't happy with that result and we had to go back to the, to the institution. What do you do then? I mean, what can be done then if you genuinely think, well, these are not this. This isn't really reflective of of my work in my exam. Well, universities should have an academic appeals procedure, and those procedures must be complied with by the university or college to ensure that you're treated fairly. But matters of academic judgment are not challengeable. You might what what is academic judgment? Um, well, that's not just any judgment by an academic. It's judgment made about a matter where only the opinion of an academic will suffice. So it, that is the exercise of the, it's using the professional and scholarly knowledge and expertise which members of university staff academics um, and external examiners draw on when they're reaching a decision in relation to for example exam results marks and grades to be assigned or degree classifications and so complaints about uh, or appeals in relation to academic judgments um, per se are likely not to be eligible for consideration under appeals type procedures and the offices of the independent adjudicator can't consider them and nor can any court of law But that said, whether something is in fact a matter involving the exercise of academic judgment isn't always clear cut and it can be an area for argument. And in addition, there certainly are decisions which could be related to exam results, which aren't matters uh, for the exercise of academic judgment. For example, the fairness of procedures and whether procedures have been correctly interpreted or applied. So, for example, if there was some administrative error um, and an exam was ended early, so that you didn't get the requisite time in which to sit it, that would not be a matter of academic judgment. That would be an administrative and and procedural issue. Right, right. Okay. I mean, we've got time for one more question, and I know that we've got a whole list of questions that I actually wanted to discuss, but we 
part that's what part two is all about as I always say I think we need to tell everybody what is the office of the independent adjudicator and how can it assist people in education law well the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, or the OIA, it's an independent body which is set up to review student complaints about higher education bodies in England and Wales. It provides a service which is free to students. For a complaint to be considered by the OIA, it has to be received within 12 months of the date of the provider's final decision. And that's very important. That's a very, very important point because a lot of people, um, you know, don't really know about time limitations in law. And in this case, if you're going to the OIA to make a complaint, it has to be from 12 months of the date of the incident of the date that you consider. Not Not quite correct. So 12 months, that's the time period, but it runs from what's called the completion of procedures letter so oh, the point I see. Is that you go through your university or education providers internal procedures when you come to the end of those right. when those are sorted your institution yeah. should provide you something called a completion of procedures letter right obviously that you've ended the internal procedures and then the time for going to the oia starts, starts from there so it's not from the date of the the, the the first day that you said right i'm going to make a complaint from uh, on this date it's actually when your institution or university has finalized their side of what they're doing for your complaint and if you're still not happy that's when you can go to the oia but your 12 months starts from that date that's right. Time limits for making claims of other sorts to the courts will usually run from the date of the incident that you're complaining about. But for the OIA purposes, it's for the completion of, complete, completion of procedures letter. Right. So that's important. That's important to, to point out. So if it's something that unfortunately has to go into, into uh, you know, issue proceedings for, for a courtroom, it's for 12, it, it will be time limitation from the date of the incident. But the time limitation for the OIA is 12 months from the date that your institution have finally dealt with it and given you their final responses and in the terms that you you outlined. What I would always say is in relation to time limits, seek legal advice about those. Yes. And it's a very important thing to get right. It's incredibly important. It's not a joke. Not that I would suggest it's a joke, but time limitations because of missing missed time limitations and Sometimes a lack of advice that's been given on time limitations, particularly in employment law matters. And, and, you know, we're referring here potentially to the teaching and the institutional side of uh, education, higher education law. Time limitations are absolutely crucial. And there we are. There we have it. Part one done, Catherine. So thank you. Obviously, I'm going to try, try and draw you into the part two naturally when we're ready to do that but I'd just like to say thank you ever so much for being a part of this podcast today it's been my pleasure excellent and I will say to our listeners don't forget to click and subscribe to our podcast and you can find us on Twitter Facebook Instagram YouTube and LinkedIn by searching Get Legally Speaking also visit our website at getlegallyspeaking.com thank you for listening empower yourself today with legal knowledge and follow us on Instagram Twitter or Facebook to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. Our episodes are free to access. However, if you feel that you would like to support the children's charity that we are raising money for, then head over to our Just Giving page at justgiving.com and search for Hattie Savari, where we are raising money for orphaned children at SOS Children's Villages, one of the worthiest children's charities. 
donate as little as £1 for a great cause. Thank you. Empower yourself today and follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching Get Legally Speaking to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. With over 3 million downloads and counting, do not miss out on learning more about a topic that interests you. Go over to our website at getlegallyspeaking.com and browse over 100 podcast episodes. Empower yourself today with legal knowledge and follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to get access to jargon-free legal information in plain and simple English. Today's episode is supported by Red Bar Law, the go-to law firm for expert, efficient and fast legal assistance, all at a fixed cost. Go to our website at redbarlaw.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.